we're going to read from a passage from the Bible from Micah chapter 7, verses 7 to 9, and then 18 to 20. So you can find that in your Bibles, Micah chapter 7, verses 7 to 9, and then 18 to 20. Follow along as I read. I'm reading from the ESV version. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his salvation, his vindication rather. (laughs) Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is God's word. All God's people said, Amen. From where you are, let's clap, give a loud clap, give thanks to God, as we also welcome up the man with a message from God, Jacob Augustine. So the passage that we have for today is Micah chapter 7. And we're going to get to there in a little bit, but I wanted to set a stage first before we get to to the verses that Lee read for us. We're going to begin with an analogy, and I want you to imagine that you're taking an afternoon walk. You're walking by a playground, and you see some kids that look like they're having a great time. You hear the the laughter, the joy, they're playing on the slides, on the swings. It all looks great, and you think, oh, isn't that cute as you walk by? But then all of a sudden, this scene takes a, a drastic turn. You notice one boy punching another boy. You're like, what is causing this violent reaction? The punch turns into throwing him down and kicking dirt on this boy. And as you walk by, you're in shock first, and then you're thinking, someone needs to do something. You're thinking, someone needs to fix this problem and speak to this bully. And then you realize, actually, his father is sitting on a park bench watching this scene unfold. And yet, the father doesn't move. He just watches this scene unfold. He doesn't seem to even bat an eye. What would be your thought of this father? Terrible father, right? A good father should discipline their child. They should go to the boy who was this bully, his son, and tell him he's in the wrong, to correct him. But he doesn't. And you might say, if I were that dad, I would have disciplined that child, right? I would never, ever, ever let my child behave that way. To tease this boy, to punch him, to throw him down, to kick dirt upon him. What a terrible father, you would say. But I want to give another context, and that is, what if the same situation happens, and the father is on the bench, he watches all this, And this time, the father gets up immediately. 
the father gets up immediately and he sprints towards the situation. He sprints towards his son who was bullying. And now you're celebrating in your heart. Like he's actually going to solve this issue. He's going to solve this problem and bring this discipline. Yes, that's what a good father should do. But then to your chagrin, to your disappointment, he takes this son by the collar, throws him against the wall and says, how dare you act like that, my son? Don't you know better than that? And he throws this son who just moments ago threw down this other child and he throws his own son down to the ground in disgust. What would you think of this father? Also, you would judge him as a terrible father, right? You would think, I would not want to do that as a dad. And that's good. Neither of these two situations is what we would want in a father. But with this lens of often we'll judge parents. Now, these examples are are dramatic in nature, but we all do that. You see a, a child misbehaving, and sometimes you'll think, oh, well, the father should, the mother should, speak this way, should correct this child, or they're being too heavy-handed. They're being too severe. We do that with God. We think that he's either too severe or we think that he's neglectful. What's called mercy, we sometimes think God is being neglectful. Have you ever found that in your heart that you feel like God is either too judgmental, his justice is too intense, Or maybe even you found yourself feeling at times that God's mercy seems like it's too much. It feels like neglect. When you read through scripture, especially the Old Testament, sometimes you might find yourself being like, man, this God feels a little angry. He feels like this abusive father. Now, I don't think that you would say that God is abusive. But have you ever had that offense in your heart where, why does God have to always bring up this sin and use such intense means to deal with it? He feels like that God at times. Or what about mercy? You know, I I don't tend to meet people that feel like God is too merciful for themselves. Usually we feel like that's God should be merciful to me, right? We don't tend to hear that complaint. But where do you hear that? Remember the story of the prodigal son. The other brother was like, Dad, did you not see what this other son did? How he wasted the entire inheritance? How he took your name through the mud? How he destroyed your reputation? And yet, you're going to have a celebration for him? You're going to give this fatted calf that we've been saving up for a special occasion, and this is it? Sometimes that's how we feel about, why is God letting someone else off the hook? Why is he being merciful to somebody else? And even that can offend us. James and John went through this with Jesus. If you remember when the gospel was rejected, what was their response? No big deal? No. They said, how about, God, we bring down some fire from heaven? We bring down some judgment. We show them what's up. And in that moment, they felt like God was the God on the park bench who was not doing anything. We get offended one way or the other. Is God too merciful is he too just and we have a hard time understanding that both of those dynamics are throughout the entire scripture i brought up the idea of the old testament with the wars and the judgments of god because again sometimes we get into this idea that the god in the old testament is this cranky dad right he's this angry dad but in the new testament we just have mercy but what does the bible say that 
God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God the Father has always had it in his heart to release mercy. And there's also been an aspect of justice throughout. And Jesus does not change that narrative. In fact, Jesus reinforces that narrative. And so I'm going to be talking about how do we understand judgment and mercy? How do we understand what feel like a competing reality in our lives? What we do know is that unlike this father at the playground, is that our God is perfect in his leadership. He's perfect in his fathering. So we understand that whenever there's justice, whenever there's mercy, he's perfectly aware of the situation and the application of these things. And there's also judgments for unbelievers and judgment for believers. I'm going to be focusing today on judgment in terms of believers. How God would react in the situation at the playground. And that brings us to this word that is essential that we understand as we look at Micah. And that is the word discipline. That God actually does point out what we do wrong. He does bring these things to our attention. He does say, hey, it's not okay that you threw that boy down, that you kicked him, that you kicked that dust, that dirt all over him. That's not okay. That's good. We sometimes need that correction of the Lord. But that judgment ultimately is mercy for the believer because it is discipline. What is discipline? Discipline brings us to repentance. It's about correction with the end in mind, with restoration of his people. It's not just to bring punishment just for the sake of punishment. No father would do that. There's a plan for mercy that's called discipline. We're going to see that throughout this entire book of Micah. God's perfect fathering through discipline. What does the Bible tell us about discipline? It says that he disciplines those whom he loves. His discipline is the greatest form of mercy. If he doesn't give you a corrective word, if he never brings any discipline and says, hey, that's not okay, He's going to let us just go our own way, and we know where that ends, don't we? But the gift for a believer is that God, with perfect judgment and mercy, will speak into our situations of compromise, of brokenness. He is merciful in that he corrects us. So my title for today is The Mercy of Discipline. Now, what is happening in Micah's day that the discipline is necessary, that the mercy of discipline is necessary. So Micah prophesied at the same time as Isaiah and Hosea and Amos, different prophets. And Micah's message, as the other prophets did as well, is he was calling his people to repentance. He was pleading with them to give in to the discipline of the Lord. What was happening in this time period is that there was intense injustice and rampant sin everywhere. This is important for us to follow because what does the Bible say about the end times is that the same situation, justice and rampant sin are going to increase more and more and more. So I want you to try to find the parallels with where the end times narrative is heading and what was happening in Micah's day. There was intense injustice. And what was the cause of this injustice? It was covetousness. It was greed. Do you remember from Pastor John's message last week? He talked about the parable of the sower. And it was Satan's strategy of warfare to get us from allowing the word of God to get into our hearts. 
You know what that final stage was that Satan uses? Is the worries of this life, that the stress of what's coming right now, not knowing how to deal with it, and the deceitfulness of riches. It chokes the word of God out of your life. Now, money is not wrong, inherently evil, but the love of money, Jesus says, is the root of all evil. They had given themselves completely over to greed. And how does this manifest? In every sphere, in every class, there was a manifestation. For example, landowners were kicking out people out of their homes, even poor widows that didn't have anywhere to go, no means of being able to get a job. They were being kicked out. The people were being oppressed by business owners and even cheated. It said that they would go to the market and they would pretend to sell you know, for example, they would pretend to have two kilograms worth of potatoes, but they were actually had 1.8 kilograms. They had cheated on the scales so they could make a little extra profit. They saw clothes that they wanted. There was a beautiful robe on someone, and they would just steal it off of them. The leaders as well, the judges, they would demand bribes. If you give me some money, I'll let you off the hook. The prophets would only prophesy if you gave me money. If you give me some money, I'm going to tell you your fortune, basically. When I say fortune, is because it was false. It wasn't the word of the Lord. They were just saying, things are all going to be good for you if you give me money. If you don't have any money, you're a poor guy, poor woman, well, forget it. God's going to bring judgment on you. There's going to be war against your life. It was basically, if you give me money, I'm going to say things are good. If you don't give me money, it's not going to be good. They had completely given themselves over to the spirit of greed. It had choked out the word of God from their life. Now, when you're in the season of compromise, remember, the discipline of the Lord is mercy. But did they want to hear that? Did they want to hear that? The answer is no. In fact, they said, do not preach. They were speaking to these prophets at the time like Micah, and they were saying, stop saying this. We're tired of hearing this, that things are going to be hard for us. We don't want to hear about a God of discipline. Do we want to hear about a God of discipline today? When I say the word discipline, when I say the word judgment, does your heart turn away? Are you distracted because that word is hard to hear? We all have this. There's times we say, stop saying this. I don't want to hear about this God is going to correct me. You know, I was preparing, you know, for the sermon and, and as part of the preparation, I share with Pastor Susie and Pastor JP and they gave me feedback. And sometimes I just want to be like, just give me good feedback. Right? Sometimes the, the, the feedback that corrects us, while it's good for us, it's hard to receive, isn't it? And we feel that way. We say, stop preaching. Stop saying these things. And they say, disgrace will not overtake us. They do not want to hear the message of God's discipline in their lives. So basically, what's happening in Micah's day is that all these kids, every one of the kids in all spheres, whether they're from a rich family, a poor family, whether they're from an educated family, an uneducated family, regardless of their personality type, they're all misbehaving on the playground. They're all mistreating the other kids. The big kids are, are hurting the younger kids, and the younger kids are taking it out on the kids younger than themselves. Everyone is treating everyone with injustice. They're stealing each other's lunch money. And so what does God say? Is that okay? Am I just going to sit on the park bench and let this happen? He does not. He says, should you talk that way, O Israel, will the Lord's spirit have patience with such behavior? Basically, if you are the Lord's child, will he not bring some 
correction, some discipline to you. If you would do what is right, you would find my words comforting. Do you see that? They had said, stop preaching these messages that things are going to be hard. They were seeking false comfort in saying that everything is good. In this example of me giving this sermon, it's like if they were to say everything was good and nothing needed to be corrected, would that even be helpful for me? No, that's a message of false comfort. What the Lord is saying here, if you would listen to my words of discipline, you will actually find true comfort in that. There is true comfort in the Lord's discipline and his corrective words. He offers them mercy. But here's the problem. They don't listen to that. Remember, they didn't want to hear this message of correction. And so what is God left to do? As a, a good father who establishes house rules for his children, and they refuse to listen through his pleading and love, he has no choice but to exile them. This happened in the history of Israel and Judah. They were actually exiled. The north to Assyria, the south to Babylon. It would be like a father sending his children to go to like military school or boarding school or juvie or something. And it, it seems so, it seems so, I'm just laughing back here at the staff. Pastor JP did a, do a stint at juvie and we're so grateful for the Lord's discipline in his life, aren't we? What a testimony of God's goodness in his life. But a good father may have to make those hard choices. And he does. He sends the people into exile. But if it just ended there, we would wonder, is, is the mercy over with? Is it only judgment from here on out? Here's the good news. Is that Micah understood the gospel narrative. He understood where this was heading. He understood that there would be still a plan for restoration, a plan for mercy, even though they refused time and time again and had to go to exile had to go to juvie for their own good. Here is the story. Micah says, chapter 2, that the remnant would be gathered. The remnant of Israel, it was prophesied that the Messiah would gather back the, the exiles of Israel, of Judah, will be regathered. This has happened partially, but it's still yet a future promise. And the king will pass before them. Great. Who's the king? It says, the Lord at the head. So we see the king and the Lord are the same character. We learn more about this kingdom two chapters later in Micah 4, that this king will have a mountain house in Jerusalem, in Zion. It will be the highest mountain on all the earth. And the word of the Lord will go forth from Zion, from this mountain house. So we know where this is going to be located. We know that he's not only king, but he's the Lord. And then to make it really clear... In Micah chapter 5, we learn that this king, this Lord, this one who rules from Jerusalem is from Bethlehem. He was saying that Jesus is the one through, through the discipline, through the mercy that will bring you guys to the final place of restoration. That we still long for today, that we believe in today. Because of Jesus' advocacy for us, we can enter into the plan of restoration that he has because there was one who paid the penalty in justice so that we wouldn't have to bear an eternal penalty of judgment. We have mercy because of Jesus, 
we look at the cross, but we look for the final restoration just as Micah did. And he said, wow, do you see this God of mercy that though he pleads with you, you didn't listen, you had to go to juvie, but I've got one coming from Bethlehem who's going to be king, who's going to be Lord. We have one who does not require that we will stay in, in severe punishment forever, but there's discipline leading to that final day of restoration. So we see this journey. We see Micah called by the Lord to confront sin and say, hey, there's a mercy plan. There's a final restoration plan. But if we stop there, we miss an opportunity to respond to that which the Lord has for us, I believe, as a community, as individuals. Because we see how does Micah respond in chapter 7, in this passage that Lee read for us, that we began with. Micah 7, verse 1 The beginning of this chapter says this, Woe is me. This was the same language that the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied at the same time, he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. This is what Peter said when he was in Jesus' presence. He said, You don't understand, Lord, how dirty I am. These were the heroes of the faith. These were the righteous ones, so to speak, in in our understanding of the heroes of God. And yet, who were the first ones to repent in God's presence? It was Micah. Do you realize there was so much sin all around and God called him to speak forth the sin? As we get closer to the return of Jesus, there's going to be sin is getting darker and darker and darker. Even within the church, we're going to see greater love, greater holiness like never before. But there will also be those within the church that are longing for those prosperity messages. Paul, through the letter of Timothy, he says that in the last days, people will want to heap up for themselves teachers according to their own interests who will preach just what they want to hear. There will be many opportunities that I believe the Lord will raise up men and women to be prophetic messengers who will call out the sin of nations, the sin of even the church, but through a spirit of mercy, through a spirit of discipline. But notice the example we have through Micah is he doesn't say, okay, good. I'm glad you guys got the message. He says, woe is me. Micah realized that, as Paul said, I'm the chief among sinners. That wasn't a, that wasn't a, that wasn't a, a just a, a message of, of false humility. He believed that. The spirit of prophecy that God will raise up through end time messengers who will speak judgment is, Lord, I'm the chief among sinners. Woe is me. Woe is me. He didn't even say, woe is us. I think we want to get to that place. We don't just say, woe is you. We say, woe is us. What are we as a community? What is God highlighting to New Philly? He says, woe is me. Oh, it's merciful. That's the God of mercy. Woe is me. What's the next stage? Verse 7. The word is the transition. Micah says, But as for me, as for this one who's woeful, who's broken, who deserves so much judgment, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. God will hear me. Do you see that the pain that we're meant to feel, the pain that we're meant to experience in our own brokenness that God in his mercy will let us feel, will let us experience, that pain, he wants us to give it to him. 
You know, Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, there's some sorrow that leads to death, right? There's some sorrow that you just feel so weighed down by the shame of your own sin that you just wallow in it and stay in that place. He doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to feel it. He wants us to experience it for a season, and that's actually a blessing of God. It's a red flag when you stop feeling that conviction of sin. But after feeling that pain of sin, he wants us to give the pain to the Lord in prayer. Number two, he wants us to bring it to daddy. That's the gospel message. I have a meme that Pastor Susie shared with me, which is so powerful. It says this. Religion says, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. Maybe you felt like that, that the weight of shame and the sin is so much. And you feel like, how can I possibly bring this to God? He's going to kill me. I can't bear the weight of this. I don't trust that my God is going to, my father is going to respond in a way that's going to love me. Maybe he's going to throw me against the wall and treat me like that terrible father. Have you ever felt like that? That I, I don't feel safe to bring it to him. But what does the gospel say? I messed up. I need to call my daddy. Maybe hitting rock bottom is what we need in life. It could be the mercy of God. What happens in the Garden of Eden, where the story begins, when sin first entered into the world, when Adam and Eve shared of the forbidden fruit, the greatest sin you could imagine, you brought sin to all humanity. I remember as a kid when I heard of, as a child when I first heard of the story of Adam and Eve, I would always try to blame my sin on Adam. Do you ever do that? You're like, oh, it wasn't me that was being mean to my sister. It's because of Adam's sin that I'm being like this. There was partly I was theologically correct, right? But of course, we also have a responsibility in, in how, we, how we respond to the Lord. Do we accept his mercy? Do we accept his discipline? But what happens in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve bring sin for all of humanity? What is God's question to Adam? Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was. But what he was establishing was this. You messed up, yes. But you need to be looking for your daddy in that place. You need to be giving that pain, that shame, that sin to the Lord. You need to feel the sin, yes. But don't keep it for yourself. It's not meant for you. He's asking, where are you? Where are you? Number three, soak in your cleansing. Verse 8 says this, I'll read it. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. There was a reality that Micah was saying that I feel like I'm in darkness right now. I feel like I've fallen right now. But he had confidence in the Lord from that place of this sense of cleansing that he experienced. He had confidence to declare, though I feel fallen right now, though I am bearing the weight of these consequences right now, I will rise again. Jesus longs to restore us, to cleanse us. Verse 9 says this, I might bear that season for a while. I will bear the indignation, the, the pain of my own sin, my own consequences, because I have sinned against him, right? The first step of repentance is acknowledgement. He wants us to feel the pain and to acknowledge it. But here's what it says. Until he pleads my cause, and executes judgment for me. When we come to the Lord, he delights in coming against the spirit of accusation. That's what the devil does. He delights to come in the opposite spirit and said, I'm going to bring restoration. Remember, this is discipline. I'm going to bring restoration to you. One of my favorite passages is Zechariah chapter 3. The leader, the high priest of Israel named Joshua, 
He was in sin. He was in compromise. His garments were dirty. That was a true fact. He had actually sinned. And he was supposed to feel the weight of those things. But you know what? Satan comes. He comes to accuse Joshua. He says, you're always going to be like that. You're always going to be disgusting. You're bad as a, inherently as a person. Now, the sin wasn't false. It was true. But the issue was, Jesus says, stop accusing him. And he brings, he brings clothes of righteousness that he puts upon him. We're to soak in our cleansing, though we feel the pain and the shame of the sin. We give it to the Lord, and we declare that we're going to rise again. But it's through repentance. It's through the mercy of the Lord. And point number four is love this God of mercy. Now, when I was creating this, I created an acronym. This is L, the last one. It's for God so loved. Feel the pain. Give the pain to him. Soak in the cleansing and then L for love. Love this God of mercy. Do you see how this passage ends? Beginning at verse 18, it says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, giving mercy, passing over transgression. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God delights in mercy of discipline. He will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He's going to cast all those sins into the depths of the sea. And he's going to show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham. The story of restoration is going to be complete. God calls us to end with worshiping this God of mercy, going through the, the story of feeling the pain, acknowledging the pain, soaking in the cleansing, and feeling this God of mercy. None of this is possible unless we have a God of mercy, unless Christ advocates on our behalf. We stand with Micah and we say, there is no God like you. You know, the name Micah is, who is like God? He ends with a pun on his own name and he says, who is like you? I'll tell you who this God is. He's a God of mercy. And he wants us to worship, to end with experiencing and worshiping this God of mercy. But it doesn't come they're just telling you everything is going to be okay. There's going to be no difficulties in your life. There's going to be no discipline. He said there is going to be. There's even going to be pain of experiencing the weight of our sins. But he says, I promise you, this is the way you experience true comfort. This is the way that you experience true cleansing. You're going to experience that God of mercy, and you're going to keep your eyes on that final restoration. That's why we study the end times, because we keep an eye on that final restoration, that everything that we do is in light of that final restoration that we have one from Bethlehem who is leading and guiding from the place of Jerusalem who will one day rule and reign as king and he will be the shepherd. He will fulfill Psalm 23 and he will lead us by still waters. He will lead Israel by still waters. He will lead you and me by still waters. But it's not going to happen outside of experiencing this God of mercy, outside of experiencing this God of discipline. This is a, a heavy word. I was studying the book of Micah this last week, feeling that God impressed it on my heart, but having no idea what the message was. It was a hard way to prepare a sermon, to be honest. I really felt like God put this on my heart, but I didn't know where we were heading with this. What was the message? And I began by, by starting at the end. And we see he's worshiping this God of mercy. 
But honestly, I had a hard time reconciling with the beginning. It feels so judgmental, so harsh, so difficult. Why are you going to send him to exile? And I believe that God connected the dots for me to see it's because he's a God of discipline. He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God who wants the best. He wants the fullness for you and me. We may just want preachers to tell us it's going to be easy to not really bring up our sins. But you know how this message comes forth? You know how it hits hearts? It's with the preacher saying, woe is me. He's going to call many of you to be preachers to those that are in your sphere. It doesn't mean preaching from a pulpit. It could be with your family, co-workers. And he might use you to, to speak a word even of correction to other believers. But the question is, are you going to begin with that, woe is me? There's pain, there's sin in my own life. Remember what Jesus says, when you see the sin in someone else's eye, right? the speck in their eye, what does Jesus say? Don't worry about that sin. Don't worry about the speck. He doesn't say that. He says, take out the log in your own eye first so that you can help someone else remove the speck out of their eye. He wants to use us to be restorers, to be ambassadors for Jesus, to help people through their sin. But it comes, it starts by saying, woe is me. And I want to lead us invite us to what feels like a scary thing inviting the lord to highlight if there's any sin in our lives this is a continual blessing of the believer though even just last month the lord highlighted an area of pride in my life and i shared it with the with the staff team and our devotional and i felt so cleansed afterwards it's a great blessing beloved to feel our sin because we have a God who we can experience his cleansing at the end. So let's go through that list that I started with today with the acronym for God so loved. First, feel the pain of sin. I want to lead us through a prayer that that David prayed, Psalm 139. If you would be willing to take the step of faith with me, the step of courage to ask the Lord, God, is there any wicked way in me? Is there any area that you desire as a father to bring to bring up, to let us know? Is there any area that you're not pleased with, but in love and mercy you desire to bring it up? Let's give a, a moment for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to everyone that's listening to this message. Speak to me, Lord. Is there a sin that you would highlight that you're not pleased with? Speak, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. All right, if you have a sin that you feel in your life, it's okay to feel the pain of that, remember. The conviction of the Lord, guilt that leads to repentance is an amazing gift. Is there any sin that you're highlighting, Lord, with me? In boldness, it's scary to pray this, but in boldness, Lord, would you even let us feel the weight of that? Let us feel the weight of sin. We thank you for the sacrifice on the cross that we're not meant to carry this sin forever. Number two, if you're thinking of a particular sin, I ask that you would imagine giving it to God. Picture him in your mind. Call your daddy and hand him that sin. Even now, I I personally repent for being quick to speak and slow to listen. Lord, help me to grow in in that gift, Lord. Help me to grow in that blessing. The manifestation of pride, Lord, help me to be one who would listen more than I would be quick to speak. I repent, Lord, that I live that way. 
I give that pain to you. It's really important to visualize it if you can. And visualize handing it to the Lord, your Father. Number three, after we give it, we declare that though I have fallen, though I have been in real darkness, I will rise again. Soak in that cleansing. The fear of the Lord is clean. It's the most comforting place to be. I promise you, Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the most comforting thing to be. There's a war in this age of believing that message of comfort in terms of that everything is going to be fine is what's going to sustain us. It's not. It's that there's cleansing through mercy. It's cleansing through discipline. It's cleansing through giving the Lord your sin. I choose to receive that cleansing today, Holy Spirit. Do you choose to say, though I'm fallen right now, though I feel like I'm in darkness right now, will you declare over yourself, will you speak to your soul, I will rise again? Will you you receive that cleansing? That's where the only real comfort comes, is in the cleansing of the cross, the cleansing of accepting his mercy, of his discipline. And then the fourth step is what? It's crying out as Micah did, who is a God like you? It's loving this God of mercy. It's that we thank him that the mercy is through us experiencing the pain of our own sin, but that we experience the redemption of the cross, that comfort of the cross. Love that God of mercy, New Philly. Let's build a culture of repentance. I've heard stories about the vulnerability that people experience in New Philly in the days of old. And I believe that the Lord says this is a promise for this people. This is a promise for this people. But you need to pursue the God of discipline. You need to be okay to have him highlight sin in your lives. Even do we have a culture where we want to share with our friends, our brothers and sisters. Will we love this God of mercy? And will we worship him? Will we declare him to those around us? Let's love this God of mercy, New Philly. I have a word to close for today. Revelation chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. We're going to be studying the the letters to the seven churches, and I felt like like God gave me a a word to speak from the church of Sardis over us. If we would live this life of, of turning to the Lord in a spirit of repentance, this is what he says. The one who conquers, the one who gives into the life of discipline, will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. What the Lord is saying is, though we might be in that season of compromise, though we might be in darkness, he's going to clothe us one day if we turn in over and over, if we ask this Lord who releases discipline, who releases mercy, if we ask him and heed this word, he's going to put white garments on us as a community. Just he's going to do across the body of Christ to those who heed this word. And here's this amazing message. It ends by saying that Jesus himself will acknowledge you before the Father and before his angels. You live a life of repentance, of finding the comfort in the God of mercy. One day it's going to end with Jesus, the King, the Lord. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to say... This one lived this life. This one ended with clean garments. Because when they were in that brokenness, when they were in that messed up position, they called their daddy over and over and over again. Oh Lord, would we be a church 
that ends with white garments, that ends with your recognition, with your acknowledgement, because we weren't afraid to come to you in our brokenness and our weakness. He delights and he loves you even in your brokenness. But as a good father, he needs us to ask him, to call him, to turn to this Lord of mercy through repentance. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.